0: The stories of some of the world's greatest women unfold here. I am Annette Comer, your host, and each week the untold secrets of success, strength, and boldness of today's powerful women are revealed. Today's woman grew up in a household of positive affirmations. She heard things like, you can always learn more, and you can do anything you put your mind to. She attended an all girls school from sixth to 12th grade. And this experience coupled with her parents affirmations shaped her to be confident and not influenced by male counterparts. At college, she was encouraged by her father to become a doctor or a lawyer. She tried medicine, but it didn't fit. So she became an attorney and eventually ended up at one of the oldest private banks on Wall Street. It was here that she realized women were so underserved in the financial space. So she pioneered a new concept of estate planning for women centered around a woman's values. Today, she continues to walk a path to greatness as she boldly ventures into new roles that can impact others in the private banking arena. It is my pleasure to introduce you to Andrea Pinta. Hi, Andrea. Thank you for joining me today. Hi, Matt. How are you? I'm thrilled to be here. Yes, and we're going to have a lot of fun. So I'm going to have us jump right on in because we have such a little time together and you have so much knowledge that I want to talk <laughs> about. So, when you went to college, you noticed other women wouldn't say what they thought or what they meant. Do you still see this today as an issue for women? Fortunately, sometimes I think it is.
1: And you mentioned in your introduction that I'm a product of an all girls secondary school education. And when you're in the room just with other girls or other women, You have no choice but to um, speak your mind and to speak up or, you know, a girl is the class president and she's good at math and she's the president of the debate team. And all of those roles are held by girls or women. So to see that at a young age, I think really influenced me. And it made me realize that there's always a place for women to speak and raise their hand. And when I went to college, which was co-educational, I realized that so often women don't speak up or don't raise their hand when they know the answer. And I think that women in the workplace, I think that we have done a lot to create an inclusive environment where women do feel comfortable raising their hand and speaking up and saying what they know. However, I think sometimes their voices get drowned out. And one of the things that I often do and many of the women that I work with do is to affirm the voices of other women in the room. When a woman speaks up and has a good idea, and we all know this from... What we read in, in the newspaper and other popular periodicals, it's become it's become an issue, which is that sometimes a woman has a good idea and it doesn't get recognized. And then somebody else in the room says it and it does get recognized. And so it's really on our colleagues and us to say, oh, actually, you know what, Annette had that idea. That's such a great idea. Now, can you say more about that? Can you claim that idea as your own? Because you said it first on those words, exactly.
0: But that's the messaging, yeah. And I think when you saw that in college, it surprised you, didn't it?
1: Did and again because of that really formative experience I had being surrounded only by girls it was so foreign to me that uh, that women would take a back seat and let um, you know these college boys <laughs> dominate the conversation <laughs> to a large degree I remember sitting in an English seminar and English was one of my favorite literature and English was always one of my favorite things and I took every single small section literature class I could in high school and it was you know it was one of my favorite subjects. And then I did the same thing in college. And I realized, you know, there were an equal amount of men and women in the classroom. And you saw so many of the women not fully participating.
0: Yeah, I'm sure you were thinking, what's up with that? <laughs> <laughs> what's sure. wrong with them? <laughs> right. uh, so someone once told you that there is no such thing as a big idea without a big ask. So <laughs> what did they mean by this? And how have you made this part of how you have managed your career?
1: Yeah, that's such a great question. And it's such a pivotal moment for me where one of my mentors told me that as I was starting to think about this concept that became the Center for Women Wealth, which is part of our private banking business, focused on serving women well and supporting them both as they create wealth and then they manage it for themselves and their families. And at the time, it was really just an idea. I was thinking about how could we serve the female clients that we work with better and how could we build a more diverse client base by having more women as clients, attracting more women to the firm. And I had written a bunch of data and <laughs> a whole bunch of ideas down in a PowerPoint deck. And I it was sort of a raggedy deck and I carried it around with me and it grew over time and I talked to everybody I could about it. And finally I spoke to my mentor sponsor, who was then the managing partner of our firm. And he said, Adrian, there's no big idea without a big ask. Because I said, I just want to do this in my free time off the side of my desk. And I'm going to do my day job. And I'm going to do this idea that I have around women. At the same time, it's my passion. I can work just a little bit harder and do it all. And he really encouraged me to do it for real, which meant going to the leadership of the business and asking for a budget and presenting the business plan as it was. It was really a business plan around women and saying, this is a real thing, and it deserves real resources. And I did do that. <laughs> and it wasn't, it wasn't my first inclination, because I didn't really want to give up my day job that provided me a lot of security. And I did really well. And I knew how to do it and to go do something totally new that I didn't know was going to be a success. So I did ask for a budget, I got the budget. In fact, when I asked Many of the men who were in the room, actually, the the male partner who runs our business today said to me, you need to go back and think about how you're going to scale this faster and come back and ask for more money, which is not something that most people hear when they present um, a new idea, a new business for a 200-year-old bank. And I did. And it's it's been one of the greatest, most fun journeys that I've been on professionally to build, to found, and then to build the Center for Women and Wealth.
0: And you've done a great job. And, you know, the interesting thing about that big ask is sometimes you might get a yes and then you got to do something with it, don't you? (laughs) You
1: can't get a yes if you don't ask, that's for sure.
0: No, you can't. You sure can't. You're exactly right. So you have had many roles in the private banking industry that you're in and your career path certainly has not been linear. So what do you see as the power of diversifying your experiences as opposed to a linear path? Right.
1: And it's so funny because you mentioned in the introduction as well, my dad was a very old school kind of guy. He was a physician and he thought there were really only two paths, which was professional school. You were either a doctor or a lawyer. And I went to law school thinking that I would be a lawyer and a partner at a big law firm for the rest of my life. And the first five years of my career, I spent at a large Boston law firm and never thought I would leave and got approached to come with an opportunity that was at my current firm. And since then, I've probably held four or five different roles in the last 12 years that I've been there. And it's really about creating a portfolio of experience. And so many of the women that I interview, because I, like you, have real curiosity about women and what drives them and what makes them successful. And we interview a lot of women who are CEOs and, and successful in a lot of other ways. And they always say, you don't know where the path is going to take you. And what I would tell younger people, what I would tell my younger self is don't worry so much. And enjoy it as you go through the experience. You know, you realize that each of those successive experiences that you have, you add another skill to your to your toolset. And that's really been true with me. You know, I started out as a client-facing person, and I've done almost every role in what we call the front office, the client-facing um, side of the business. And now I've gone a little bit more internal to help run our sales and marketing functions. And every time I do something new, I learn a whole new set of skills, which together add up to something bigger than some of the parts, I think.
0: Well, and bigger than you probably could have ever imagined when you started. <laughs> It's
1: true. I mean, I thought I was going to be a tax lawyer for my entire life. <laughs> <now we're>
0: not. <laughs> so who knows totally where you'll be 10 years from, from now? <laughs> I know. I know. It's exciting to think about. So I'm going to stay in this space a little bit more. So one of the keys to your success has been your willingness to create your own roles. But you told me you often see other women afraid to do this. What do you think stops them? Fear of failure. <laughs>
1: I think it's really scary. And it's scary for me too. You know, I really paused before I gave up my client work to run the Center for Women and Wealth full time because I worked with some of the most interesting, sophisticated clients in our office at the time. And I think I did a pretty good job for them. And I think they liked me. And that creates, um, in a client-centric business, that creates a lot of value for the firm, for, for you personally, for the business. And it was really difficult for me to make the jump away from that, knowing that there was this type of work that I really liked to do and I did well, and to have enough faith and confidence in my own idea that there was going to be value in this idea of serving women and engaging women in order to grow our business. That's really what it was. And at the time I had another mentor who I worked for for a number of years. And he said to me, would you be happy doing your current role for the rest of your career? And the minute he said that to me, I knew there was no question, but to go and do the next thing because I wouldn't have been, (laughs) and I really enjoyed it. And I really liked it. And there was certainly more growth to be had in that role, but To not have another big challenge in the course of my career was not something that I was interested in entertaining. I wanted to be able to take a leap and have a really sharp learning curve again and to conquer a different type of work.
0: So you think that then that women do hesitate to create these new roles from the self because you mentioned fear and that kind of uh, gets wrapped into lack of confidence, doesn't it? So they stay yeah. comfortable.
1: Yeah. And I mean, it's, I don't think we can, I can generalize all women because you see women of out course. there creating new things and, and creating amazing value in the world and being entrepreneurs and, and running incredible companies and philanthropies and all sorts of other things. I think that sometimes we overthink the challenge and think, you know, it's, it's the data, you know, that we know about women applying for roles, right? Men will apply for a role when they have like 30 or 40% of the qualifications, whereas women wait till they have 90% or hundred percent. And, you know, we've all interviewed enough men and women to know the difference between how they think about their own abilities. You know, a lot of people like to say, especially in the investment industry, that women are risk adverse, and there's a lot of data on this on both sides of the issue. I'm not sure that women as a whole are risk adverse. I think they're very risk aware. They're realistic about both their own abilities and what the challenge ahead is, or about their ability to invest or whatever it may be. And so I think that risk awareness, sometimes you get into a spiral. You know, there's a lot of people like Claire Shipman out there who talk a lot about confidence and the confidence gap and confidence building for women. And she talks a lot about how you know, when you have a quiet moment, when you're lying in bed at night, she talks about her own experience. And I think this is common to a lot of women, you get into this spiral of thinking about all of the things that can go wrong. And you have to block that, I think, in order to take a really big leap in, in your family life and your career and anything else that you have to say, I'm not going to give that, I'm not going to give that too much space. Right. I'm going to know that that's there. You know, sometimes write it down, put it away, fold up the piece of paper, put it in your desk and then take the leap.
0: I agree with you. I think women do struggle with that at times. I also see in my male colleagues, they don't struggle with that near as much. They leap into some things they really have no business leaping into. But uh, (laughs) so their their ego gets kind of jumps in there and maybe gives them the push.
1: Right. Yeah. But we also socialize boys to be risk takers.
0: Right? Yeah, you're right. Exactly.
1: And we socialize women to be caretakers. Right. And there's a lot of work that's been done around this. I'm by no means an expert on it, but I have a boy and a girl. So I've done some reading in the space and just the words and the language and the expectations we have for children set them up in life to to live and to conduct themselves a certain way. And, you know, you started off, and I've never really thought of it, the way that you framed it, which was there were so many boards of affirmation in my house growing up, which is true. And my mom was the driving force behind sending me to an all-girls school because she always, always, always said to me, Adrian, you can do anything any boy can do. And that was sort of the f- refrain that I heard growing up. And I think that we have to say those things to girls because it's not always... I think today, it's probably different than 40 years ago, that we do take for granted that, that girls and women can do anything that boys and men can do. But I think to hear those words and to have it as part of your mantra internally is really important for young people.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. Because so many of the societal messaging doesn't necessarily say that to us at times.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And then we get the self-doubt going on and start to spiral a little bit. Right. I'm going to talk about self-doubt since I brought that up self-doubt can certainly be a motivation killer. Mm -hmm. So what does, not only what, but when does self-doubt start to creep in on you and how do you keep it in perspective?
1: Mm, It's a good question. And we talked about this in preparation. It's made me think a little bit more about it. I have a lot of (laughs) self-doubt about a lot of things. And, you know, I do try to push myself out of my comfort zone pretty regularly. And I read something a couple of years ago that your comfort zone's like, Donut or a circle, right? And you keep pushing out on it and pushing out on it until you have a much larger zone of comfort, right? So, something that's pretty comfortable for me is public speaking because I've done a lot of it. I was a college debater, I like public speaking, but I still get nervous. I just get less nervous than the last time I did it. And so, I think it's to consistently and constantly be stepping just a little bit further outside your comfort zone in terms of what you think you're capable of doing easily. And I think that's where self-doubt comes in most often. You know, sometimes we think, geez, this is a really hard assignment. This is a really hard goal for me to hit this year in my business. And I don't know if I can do it. And the key is to continue to, you know, push those goals out further and further so that they don't seem so far out. And you've actually crossed the finish line a lot earlier than you would have otherwise. So, you know, again, this year, I have a pretty, you know, I feel like I have a pretty substantial goal for 2021. I'm not quite sure yet how I'm going to accomplish it, but that's okay. And I think you just have to continue to push yourself to do the work and to get a little bit more uncomfortable. And then um, you realize that you're doing things that a year ago or five years ago, you never would have wanted to do or would have pushed yourself to do. And you've created that space that is comfortable and then you can push even further.
0: And when you were talking, I was thinking to myself that sometimes when we can see how to do it, that kind of helps, or to see that it's possible, that kind of helps quiet the Mm self-doubt some. It gives us something to counterbalance that with. Lisa, Mm -hmm. that's the way it is for me.
1: I think that's true. And I had a mentor once who told me, you need to stop for a minute and look downhill, which I think is really important because so often we're just looking uphill. We're thinking the next thing I have to conquer, what's the next goal that I have to hit? And if you look back downhill and think about all of the territory that you've already covered, you'll think, oh, geez, well, the next 10 feet up the hill is not that hard. Look at what I've already done. And I think that we often don't give ourselves enough space to do that, to really appreciate the work that we've done or the milestones that we've already hit. And I think that can also help with the self-doubt. It's like, well, of course I can do the next thing. I just did these five things really well and I exceeded my expectations.
0: Right, exactly. So When you're pioneering a new idea, you have an approach where you focus on achieving a critical base of support and you build from there. So I'd love for you to share this approach and how it works to help you gain traction on a new concept that you're creating. Mm -hmm. I thought it was brilliant. So I'd love to hear that. (laughs)
1: Yeah, I certainly can't take credit for this idea. An advisor of mine in the early days of launching the Center for Women and Wealth, she was the one who came to me with this idea. And She does a lot of work in the organizational change space, and she said, when you have a new thing, whatever it might be, whether it be a new product, a new process, a new way of doing something, a new part of your culture and your organization, she said, the people who you want to get on board first are the early adopters, people that are already excited about it, that hear you say it the first time, and they're raising their hand and saying, I'll do that with you, let's go. And those are the early adopters, and those are the enthusiastic people who are willing to try new things and innovate. And they might like it because they like you, they're a supporter of you, or they, the idea is something they've been thinking about for a while, or they, for whatever reason, it has resonance with them. So she said, early adopters are usually 20% of your population. You take those people and you do your new thing with them, and then you have a story to tell. You've proved your business case, right? If you're selling, you know, I'm going to sell purple pens for the first time, you you know, the people who are really into your purple pen, you sell it to them and you show them that it works and it's really great. And then you go tell that story to everybody else. And what that does is it starts building additional support within the, maybe not the lowest 20%, the people who are naysayers, they're like, oh, that idea is never going to work. That thing's never going to sell. Those people are just grumpy, (laughs) right? Maybe they're not at a point in their career where they want to do anything different. You know, you sort of forget about the bottom 20% of people who are never going to come along with your idea, but what you're really focused on and who you really want to win is the middle 60%, right? So you have 20% of people who are ready to go, 20% who are like, no thanks. And it's the 60% in the middle that you want to win their hearts and minds with your stories of success and with those early adopters who are saying, no, look, this is really great to go convince them that the idea is really great. So you know, you're never looking for 100% adoption, I don't think, I mean, unless it's an issue of life and death or you know, safety or something else. But you know, with a new sales idea, with a new marketing idea, with a new product, you want to get most of the people doing it. And then it becomes part of who you are as an organization or part of your culture, and everybody does it.
0: Yeah, and I love that. I think it's because I think too often we get focused on trying to get the 80%. Right. As opposed to starting with that 20% and building right. the... And that also builds confidence in what we're doing as well. Right. When you have right. a cheerleading squad behind you.
1: <laughs> you need cheerleaders for sure. Yeah.
0: yeah, you're exactly right. Especially when you're pioneering an idea. You have been given feedback that you're often too strong in your opinions and that many of the men around you think you need to soften your approach. Do you hold the line on how you operate or do you try to soften?
1: I try to soften. I don't always do a good job of it. So, you know, I work in a place where culturally you have to be a good teammate. And I think that's a good culture. And I want to be a good teammate. And that means that everybody needs space for their ideas to be heard. And I realize, and I'm actually not an extrovert. I'm, I'm more of an introvert, but I've sort of trained myself over time to be more externally focused. And I was a high school and college debater. And so, you know, you sort of put your idea out there and you're trained to defend it to the death. And so, you know, I just have a lot of that in my in my background. And so, you know, I love a good debate about what's the right way to go. What's the right thing to do? What's the right business plan to pursue? And that's really fun for me. I realize it's not fun for everybody. And <laughs> not everybody wants to engage in that way in the workplace. And there are a lot of people with a lot of really good ideas that, are never going to volunteer them in a large group meeting or are never going to be the loudest voice around the table. And folks who have louder voices just naturally like me need to learn to temper it in order to get the best results from a team, especially if you lead a team of people. So I've worked really hard at that. And I think I still have work to do. I know I still have work to do, but i um, it's a balancing act.
0: Yeah. And it's an ongoing journey, isn't it? Because you have a lot of male energy. So that's... <laughs>
1: it is a journey. And I think you also have to know the right temperament for the environment that you are in. Right. And I have a team of folks, the marketing and sales enablement teams report to me, and there's a lot of women in those teams. And there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of really talented women who are never going to have the loudest voice in the room. And that's fine. I mean, that's great. I mean, we need a team that has all types of people on it in order to be successful. I mean, that's diversity of thought, diversity of perspective, diversity of work style. And uh, if we can't create an environment that allows those folks to put their best foot forward and to shine, then we have a problem. At the same time, I think it's an industry dominated by men. So I think you have to just, you have to know sort of how to balance that.
0: Yeah, and so you need to soften, but don't soften too far. You'll get mowed down. You'll get squashed underneath it like a marshmallow, won't you?
1: Probably <laughs> yeah, not doing that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, you're still young enough. You're still you can still get there. <laughs> so, Adrian, is there anything about your journey to greatness that we haven't covered that you'd like to share with other women?
1: Yeah, you know, I think that one of the the values that I try to live is to help other women in the workplace to the extent that I can, if I'm ever in a position to sponsor or mentor somebody. I think that's really, really important. What I've realized later in my career too, is that women who are leaders in organizations really need to take time to sponsor younger men. And it's not something that was obvious to me initially, but I think that they become, you know, there's a lot that is valuable about using your time to mentor or sponsor folks that aren't like you and that maybe don't perfectly understand your experience in the workplace. So, you know, to think about how you can reach out and work with or help or advise folks in your workplace who don't look like you, who you wouldn't naturally align with. And so that's something that I'm certainly thinking about and pushing myself to do these days. And I think it's really important in order to create more inclusive workspaces to do that more often.
0: Well, and and, and I'm going to add a comment to that because I think when we are very driven, as you and I are, we have to make that a conscious effort. And and I agree with you, it's so needed to pass the baton forward and lift other people up as others have lifted us up, for sure. Mm -hmm. For sure you have been wonderful. Thank you so much. You have so much wonderful knowledge and you're on (laughs) such an amazing career path. And I really appreciate you taking time to come and share your gold with us.
1: Well, thank you for having me. And I feel like we could talk all day. You're an excellent interviewer.
0: (laughs) Well, Thank you. (laughs) Yes. I think we could talk for a long time for sure. (laughs) See, Adrian is another great example of how women are challenging the norm, making things happen and demanding their own greatness. So join me next time on the world's greatest women show as another powerful woman's story unfolds.